Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, art historian John Klein. He's the author of Matisse and Decoration, a new look at how Henri Matisse's interest in the French decorative tradition informed and motivated his art. The book argues that Matisse's interest in decoration began as early as his Fauve years and then continued throughout his career. The book has a special focus on Matisse's interest in decoration from about 1935 to his death in 1954. It talks about how Matisse translated his interest in decoration first into easel painting and later into significant commissions for private individuals and the Catholic Church in the United States and Europe. Klein's book also reveals how Matisse responded to the crisis of World War II and helped participate in France's post-war revival through decorative projects. The book, which is absolutely terrific, was published by Yale University Press. It's available from Amazon for about $39. On the second segment, Kimball Art Museum curator and senior deputy director George Shackelford and I will discuss a major new Pierre Bernard painting that the Kimball has acquired. But first, John Klein, after the break. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16th, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. On the opening night of the exhibition Sally Mann, A Thousand Crossings at the Getty Museum, renowned photographer Sally Mann discusses her book Hold Still, a memoir with photographs. Named one of the best books of 2015 by the New York Times, Washington Post, and National Public Radio, Hold Still reveals her fascination with family, mortality, and the landscape of the American South. Get tickets and learn more about this free November 16th event at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016, to the first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade. This is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. Featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections, this landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And we're back. John Klein, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here, Tyler. At the end of your great 2001 book, Matisse Portraits, you write that Matisse turned toward decoration so that he could work alone. And you resurface that observation in this book, mostly to say that you were wrong back then. And indeed, this book is is chock full of collaborations between Matisse and people both close to him and in distant workshops and at other various sites. And, you know, he's also doing collaborations with the aims of others, such as the reemergence of French national identity at key moments, things we'll talk about. 
But first, can you walk us through your shift from thinking that Matisse turned to decoration to work alone to realizing that he didn't? Yes. The context for that is is that uh, portraiture requires a kind of collaboration. And uh, one of the theses of that earlier book was that Matisse ceased to be interested in that uh, collaboration with sitters whom he considered to be of the same or equivalent social or economic class. And he turned to the hired model as a way to get out of that social relationship and then turned to decoration uh, uh, as a way of working alone. And that was just a mistake to say that, because as I learned when I worked on the book now published, which I didn't foresee at the time uh, of the publication of Matisse Portraits, that decoration is completely collaborative, as you just said yourself. Uh, Matisse acts uh, as a principally as a designer, and other people execute his designs, and it requires multiple steps and multiple skilled crafts people to to execute a ceramic tile mural or a stained glass or a tapestry. So I was rash much earlier, and this was a mea culpa. And I thought, well, why not make this little confession to begin my acknowledgement that uh, decoration is actually extremely collaborative. Was there a moment or moments in the research where you came to realize that or or artworks that pointed you in that direction? I'm not sure I had a, a... or I can't remember a single epiphany, but certainly working in the Matisse archives in the suburbs of Paris and realizing how much negotiation took place, realizing how much back and forth was needed when a decoration was commissioned from Matisse or when he undertook a project. I mean, some of the collaborative aspects were pretty well known, but I think one of the contributions that the new book makes is to expose something of the collaborative nature of decoration on a large scale. And the the correspondence, for instance, between between Matisse and his son Pierre in New York City, Pierre Matisse, the art dealer, and some craftspeople in France, shows that he was really very concerned about how his designs would be executed. And he took a great interest in some of the technical specifics without knowing how to do them. He didn't know how to make stained glass, for instance. So he relied on other people. And and that's something that I didn't really think through very well when I wasn't writing about decoration. I think that before we get into the chronology of of the book and Matisse's progression through decoration from the early 20th century until 1954, I think it's useful for us to try to describe how early in the 20th century, easel painting was aligned with, you know, decadent commercialism but decoration wasn't. And because that's kind of antithetical to contemporary audiences, maybe you could outline for us what the French and and Matisse's thinking was about the relationship between easel painting and decoration starting at the beginning of the 20th century. Sure, or even earlier, starting starting in the 1870s, for instance. And, And in the 1870s, decoration was thought of in France, at any rate, principally in the realm of large scale painting for for buildings often multiple canvases or multiple frescoes for either public or private buildings, usually with a uh, elevating, edifying thematic content. And these were outside the marketplace. If something's commissioned, you uh, have a patron who's paying an artist or a series of artists to make things. And so there's no marketplace consideration. And from that kind of decorative painting, 
evolved uh, more private forms of decoration. And we can see this in the work of Vuillard and Bonnard, for instance, the, the many decorative paintings they did for domestic settings. And so those do start to enter the realm of an art marketplace. And at the same time, the rise of the easel picture, the dominance of the easel painting in the art markets of Europe and the United States is a function of the rise of art dealers. And so decorative painting of the kind that, for instance, uh, Pierre Pou de Chavannes practiced with these large-scale mythological subjects, uh, very elevating in content, this becomes a bit passé by the very end of the 19th century. And then as the 20th century progresses, easel painting, which is associated with the avant-garde, comes to seem to many observers to be overly commercialized, which was your opening suggestion here. And mural painting seems less subject to the marketplace. And so the 1930s, especially, is a kind of golden age of mural painting, which with a non-commercial element. And, and one of the culminations of this was the 1937 World's Fair in Paris, where there were hundreds of mural paintings on all kinds of subjects. And this was widely thought of both in Europe and the United States as a, a measure against the art market and therefore against capitalism. So mural painting has a, has a strongly anti-capitalist quality in the 1930s, something that it didn't have in the 1870s and the 1880s when Pou de Chavannes was the, the king of mural painters in France. So that's a good transition to Matisse and what informed and motivated his interest in, in decoration and decorative painting. Certainly, as we know from Hilary Sperling's two-volume biography, especially, Matisse grows up in the north of France in a textile-producing region, so surely that had an impact on him. But who do we know that he was looking at and thinking about and sometimes even being collected by in the early 20th century as is orienting himself and his own career and interests? Well, one of his first, uh, as you know, and as uh, Hilary Erling gives us a lot of detail about this, one of his first major artistic efforts was as a, a kind of swag painter, a painter of decorative scenery for the 1900 World's Fair in Paris. And so through that and other contexts of that kind, he was exposed to the potential for large-scale mural painting, but he didn't undertake his own large-scale mural painting of that kind for another 30 years or so. But generally speaking, I would say that he was he was principally an easel painter and a sculptor in the early years of his career. But pretty early on, he started to, uh, I could put this in this way, to think in a decorative manner and to think of his paintings as occupying specific spaces and complementing other elements of that space. Here's one example. The painting he made in 1904 called Luxe Calme et Volupté, it sounds terrible in English, luxury, calm and voluptuousness, which was bought by the neo-impressionist painter Paul Signac. Signac wanted to install it in his dining room, and Matisse was very interested in how that would have an impact within the dining room overall. And he was pleased that uh, Signac liked this painting and wanted to install it in such a prominent place in his home. But he was concerned that his painting blend in. He wanted it to be part of a decor, not, not something that would stand out or stick out in some, some obtrusive way. So he was thinking from a fairly early time about how his paintings worked together with other paintings and within a domestic, especially domestic context. Another example is that when the Russian industrialist Sergei Shukin bought quite a quantity of Matisse's paintings, 
and Matisse subsequently went to Moscow, Shukin asked Matisse, well, I don't think it's known for sure if Shukin asked Matisse or if Matisse suggested, but in any case, Matisse rehung the major gallery where his paintings were shown. So he was concerned with overall effects as much as, and maybe sometimes even more than the, the effect of an individual canvas. I think you have a great story in the book about how Sinoch actually, about how there was some discussion about whether or not Matisse's painting could be, in today's language, embedded in a wall. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes, Matisse liked that idea, that it would seem to be part of the wall, that it would be part of the wall rather than hung on the wall. Of course, it was hung on the wall. But the idea that it could be specific to that space and respond to the ambience of that space was something that both he and Signac uh, were interested in. I thought that, was, that, that story was a great way of illustrating that while normally we think of Matisse's decorative projects as, as only coming much later, that this book argues, and I think quite convincingly, that Matisse is thinking of decorations even before Fauvism. So speaking of, of Fauvism, we think of, of it as bringing a, a certain aesthetic speed to the canvas as being loose and sketchy, and of course about prioritizing the artist's choice of color and color relationships to what exists in the actual or natural world. You argue that even in this period, Matisse is thinking of making painting decorative. How so? Yes, I think he was. And I think one thing that I hope the book uh, shows is a kind of continuity of concerns between this early part of his career in which he is thinking decoratively. He does some decorations, you know, his uncle's, we don't have those paintings anymore, the, the, whatever paintings he did for his uncle's dining room. But the um, idea of thinking decoratively is really ingrained in him from a very early time. And he expressed it in his paintings, of course. He expressed it in his ambition to paint on a large scale. So, for instance, paintings like Bathers with a Turtle in the St. Louis Art Museum, my hometown museum from 1908, is a very, very large canvas. Dance and music for Shukin's mansion's staircase are even larger paintings. So the ambition to paint on a large scale is connected to painting for architectural settings. But it's also in 1908, with the publication of his essay, Notes of a Painter, that he establishes a theoretical justification for thinking decoratively. And, and his justification goes something like this. What I am after, my goal in art, is expression. But expression does not consist of emotional expression. It's not the expression of anger or fear or sadness or joy in a painting. Expression, Matisse goes on, is carried by the colors and the arrangement and the whole composition. And then he goes on to say that decoration is the art of composing to express the feelings of the artist. So decoration and expression are very closely allied in his work. And I think this is maybe in part a a response to what he probably perceived as the stridency of German expressionist painting at the time, which did seem to be highly emotional and charged. And Matisse was after a painting, a kind of painting. His goal was to make paintings that calmed rather than roiled the individual. And he said that explicitly, and as, as you're well aware, 
as your whole audience is probably well aware, he made that what to some seems like an unfortunate comment likening a painting to a comfortable armchair. And this was in the same essay, Notes of a Painter. So that the idea of Matisse's uh, painting easy listening or easy looking paintings uh, gets deeply ingrained in the criticism of his work thereafter. But what he what he seems to have meant was that he wanted painting to express a kind of contentment and, and sometimes a joy, satisfaction. He was painting for a middle-class clientele. He was not a rebellious painter in the social sense or the political sense. He was painting for a a class of people who were uh, capitalists. And of course, pre-Soviet Union, the Russian industrialists were capitalists. And he was trying to work out a kind of painting that would express himself fully. And he believed that the way to do that was to uh, think decoratively, to think in terms of how the painting is is pleasing and attractive, how the colors harmonize with one another. Sometimes the harmonies are very unusual, but he did strive for harmony, not for stridency in his paintings. When he's in North Africa in the spring of 1906, he's buying Algerian pottery and textiles and other decorative objects. And he knows at this time that Gauguin is making objects that are decorative. Did those things he buys in North Africa, do you think, impact his thinking about how he can make his work decorative or, you know, even maybe if he doesn't get there for 15 years? He did uh, buy and bring back to France uh, some pottery from Algeria and some uh, textiles, and he incorporated some of those objects, especially the pottery, into his own paintings, and he likened them or put them in a kind of dialogue with other sorts of objects, with natural objects. There's a painting called Pink Onion in which he paints pink onions that have sprouted, but also two or possibly three Algerian pots and one of his own sculptures. So he's making analogies or creating dialogues uh, between his own work and the kind of pottery that he brought back from Algeria. As for Gauguin's own ceramics, Matisse saw plenty of them in this period, and also Gauguin's carved sculpture. So he had a thorough knowledge of Gauguin's work in 1906 and 1907. And then there was that great retrospective of Gauguin's work, which, as I say, I think was in 1906. So Gauguin is a great example for branching out from the fine arts medium of painting or media of painting and sculpture into other kinds of materials. And Gauguin was far more adventurous than Matisse was in this respect. He was a really an innovator for its own sake in a great variety of materials and testing uh, ceramic possibilities with different glazes and uh, really just extremely inventive. Matisse was more conventional in this respect, but in 1907, he did make Along with some of the other Fauve painters, they decorated pottery. And in doing so, they were taking a bit of a stance against the establishment, against the fine arts tradition and branching out into uh, a medium, which wasn't even a high-flown kind of ceramics, but uh, stoneware. 
not porcelain, but stoneware, uh, the material of the people, the material of popular camper ware, which was painted with birds and other motifs. And Matisse and Vlamanck and Duran and other fauve painters made quite a number of plates and vases and other ceramic forms in this period, not actually making the forms, I should clarify. They painted ceramics, but this was a way of taking advantage of a new ecumenicalism or a new freedom in, in what the kinds of things that constituted art. One example of this uh, at the institutional level is that the Autumn Salon, the Salon d'Automne, which was founded as an open exhibition in 1903, and uh, Matisse was part of the, the founding of this uh, uh, Autumn Salon, began to admit uh, decorative arts into its, into its exhibitions. And Matisse and other foes exhibited quite a number of these in the Autumn Salon of 1907. So they were making a, a kind of statement against the dominance of the traditional fine arts media and, and establishing that as a kind of avant-garde move in the way that Gauguin had done, because it was part of Gauguin's avant-gardeism that he was so uh, so free and so exploratory in his use of non-fine arts media. Yeah, in the same period when Matisse is doing Bathers with a Turtle and the Lolexes, if you will, he's doing uh, a series of ceramic tiles for a German industrialist, a German collector. So that back and forth, which I don't think lives large in the American or English language literature, uh, you really pull that out here, and it's really it's really interesting. But we're going to uh, zoom past it for the time purposes and zip into 1919, when Matisse designs a ballet, costumes and stage sets, for Diaghilev. Is that a decorative project, and why? Yes, it is. In in designing for, for ballet, for dance uh, and theater, Matisse is decorating costumes, and he's decorating sets, drop curtain, and he designed these things for several ballets in 1919, uh, as you say, and then uh, later in the 1920s, late 1920s, and then again in the late 1930s. So he was interested in the challenge of designing for the theater, but he was pretty well unprepared for how to do it. He didn't really understand what a professional scene painter called the grammar of scene painting. And he had to be instructed, but he also took took liberties with the traditional ways of working on theater set design and costume design. But this was a very frustrating project for him. He ended up being very dissatisfied with the results, and basically he vowed never to design for the theater again, a, a vow that he broke several times in subsequent decades. But it was a really important way for him to, among other things, he was trying to move into a broader world of the arts, to extend his reach into arts that weren't strictly speaking visual arts, but to give a visual component to dance and, and ballet. Costumes, designing for costumes, was a way of animating his designs. That is, the dancers move and the appearance of the costume changes. So Matisse became ever more conscious of that challenge, and he negotiated it more successfully in his later efforts for ballet. But the whole example, the whole process of designing for, it was the um, Song of the Nightingale, was unsatisfactory to him. And he, he pulled back for a while, and, and it took another 10 years for him to uh, think about doing it again. So this is breaking chronology. We're talking about 1919. But in 1950-51, Matisse is working on the Vance Chapel, the most famous of his, of his late career anythings, really. 
And among the things he he designs as part of that project are are vestments or a vestment for you know what the what the priest would wear as he addresses the congregation. Does the experience of working for theater inform these vestments, which are spectacular in Vance? Well, I certainly think so, because insofar as the the uh, performance, I'm, I'm already using the word performance, the performance of the Catholic Mass is a kind of theater. I think Matisse was quite conscious of the relationship. And having been commissioned in the first place to do all of the designs for a new Catholic chapel in the south of France, this commission was in the first place an effort to reinvigorate the Catholic Church, and more specifically, the Dominican order of the Catholic Church, because it is a Dominican chapel. And there were Dominican priests who were instrumental in in, uh, getting this initiative off the ground, a a movement called the Sacred Art Movement in the post-war period. And and so the Vence Chapel, Matisse's Chapel of the Rosary at Vence, is a major monument in the Sacred Art Movement in France. So the point of it is, the goal of it was to reinvigorate Catholicism and Catholic ritual by employing important, uh, influential French artists to design for for these churches. And so the priestly vestments are very much like theatrical costumes. There are changes of costumes, not in any given mass, but in the liturgical seasons. There were multiple liturgical seasons, each of them with a set of costumes, and also other fabric works like the the veil that covers the chalice that contains the, the blood runners on the altar, the stole that the uh, priest would wear over the vestment. So Matisse is designing for a figure moving through space and making a performance of a ritual. And so he's thinking about the forms that he designs moving over over the cloth and as a, a moving foreground to a static background, which would be his own black and white drawings on ceramic tiles and stained glass windows. So there were several, there was a black and white component, a colored component, and then a colored moving component in the priestly vestments. So he was really thinking of all of these things together, a total design process. And this was a great challenge for him and something that he that he really welcomed because he began his work on the Vence Chapel in a much more modest way. And then he ended up bit by bit taking over the design of the whole thing. Back into chronology, after Diaghilev, Matisse goes to Nice. Well, what happens to his interest in the decorative there? Does he abandon it? Does it kind of, this is a loaded word, but retreat into the canvases themselves, into the tapestries and and textiles behind and around his models? What happens to it? Retreat is a loaded word, but it's not entirely inappropriate. France was in retreat in some sense after the First World War especially through the work of Ken Silver, we're now very familiar with the idea of the, the return to order in France, the the sense that France had become, before the First World War, had become too open and too international. We hear echoes there of today's situation in Europe, for instance, and indeed in the United States. Those who promoted a tightening of the reins, a, a circling of the wagons, and a return to order dominated French politics in this period. And Matisse, while not an overtly political, politically oriented person, like other artists of the period, he was 
tamping down his expressions in certain ways. And, and retreat is one way of thinking of it, but I think the decorative qualities of Matisse's work, they don't go underground exactly, but they're more firmly embedded in the oil paintings he made in the 1920s. And so the notorious subject of the odalisque, the woman of the harem that Matisse, uh, or alleged woman of the harem, because Matisse was usually painting French models in these paintings of, of nude or half-naked uh, female figures in exotic interiors. This subject, an exotic subject, has a decorative quality that Matisse emphasizes by the way he surrounds the figure with a real profusion of patterned fabrics, uh, furniture, uh, cloth hanging on the walls. He's really interested in placing the figure within a decorative context. And, and in fact, I would say that he's making of the figure a kind of decorative element itself. And he does this over and over and over again throughout the 1920s. It could be a form of uh, of charging as batteries or a form of uh, retreat. It has components of those and other things, but he never abandoned the idea that his paintings would have a decorative quality. And if anything, it's it's a, a little bit, it's not easier to see, but it's more forceful because it doesn't seem so obvious, as obvious as, as decorating for a ballet or as obvious as the large painting he made for the Barnes Foundation at the end of the decade in the early 1930s, the big painting called Dance, where it's very obvious that what he's interested in is a large-scale architectural decorative effect. So the, the Barnes Dance mural, which we're probably not going to spend a ton of time on, is clearly obviously a decorative project, which in today's language could even be called site-specific. Between 1929 and 1936, so, you know, kind of the end of the Nice years and the beginning of, of a return to engagement uh, in, in, in some forms, you know, in these, these six or seven years, Matisse does almost no easel painting and then begins to work on, on large reclining nude or, or pink nude, as it's probably better known. It's at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And Matisse's son, Pierre, who is by now um, in New York and, and a dealer, immediately recognized it as a painting, quote, related to the great decorations such as dance and music. So two or maybe three questions. Why did Matisse return to easel painting? Why did he do it with a project rooted in decoration? And how and why, I mean, how, how and why do you think Pierre noticed it as such in this moment? Yeah, it's a very interesting statement that Pierre makes. He's very concerned in this period that his father is going off his feet a little bit, uh, not not being as as productive. That he's perhaps softening. Yes, and uh, Pierre has a, a vested interest on several levels. I mean, he was Matisse's son, and he's concerned for his father. But he's also an art dealer in New York who handles his father's work, usually behind the scenes. He. Pierre Matisse exhibited the work of Miro, Juan Miro, far more than he exhibited the work of his father. But he worked for his father uh, behind the scenes as a kind of intermediary with American clients. But yes, Pierre says that the pink nude is the successor to the, the great decorations such as dance and music. The interesting thing there is that the pink nude is about a quarter of the size of those paintings. It's less than a meter across. And dance and music are both nearly four meters across. 
And so it's a completely different scale. And that's something about Matisse's work that always strikes people, has always struck me and others as well, that small paintings can look really big. There's a, there's a scale, it's a kind of deception about how big something is. And it has to do with the character of Matisse's forms. So that painting, The Pink Nude, seems like a successor to those much earlier but much larger paintings. It's also a painting that is very much like dance and music from from 20 or 15 years earlier. Like those paintings, it's very flatly painted. It didn't begin that way. Matisse made a very volumetric volumetric looking nude figure and then he painted it, repainted it over and over again. And for the first time, he documented the process of his painting by having a photograph taken at the end of each day's work. And then his assistant, Lydia Delectroskaya, would, with turpentine and rags, would erase much, or perhaps in some cases, all of the image that Matisse had finished with on that day. And he would begin fresh the next day. So the, the painting is... This isn't Matisse's phrase, but Picasso once said that a painting is a sum of destructions. And that's absolutely what Matisse was doing in this painting. And he was terribly interested in his process. And the documenting of his process was a way of showing himself where he had come to and where he might go next. And then subsequently, it was a way of showing audiences the difficulty, the hard labor of the process that Matisse went through to make this painting because he exhibited the photographs. Uh, yeah. And we have photographs of that installation. Yeah. So he wanted his audience to know that what looks easy is, in fact, not easy, that the result that looks easy is the result of hard work. And in the process of making and remaking the painting, he gradually flattened out the figures so that it stretches across the canvas. It's relatively unmodeled. It's uh, positioned against patterned fabrics. So in, in many ways, it's very much like the odalisques from the 1920s. But whereas the odalisques were very substantial, robust, volumetric, highly modeled uh, figures, the pink nude is like a cutout in the sense of it's being relatively uniform in color across the entire extent of the body. And it's with sharp edges, and it just doesn't look like a figure in space. It looks like a, like a flat representation of a figure on a poster or something like that. I want to touch quickly on, on Rouge et Noir and why it was important for Matisse. How would it kind of inform his work over kind of the decade or so afterward? What was it and how did it inform his work? Well, this was the ballet that he did in the late 30s, Red and the Black, or Rouge et Noir. And he seems to have, you know, after having uh, renounced uh, ballet uh, design, theater design, uh, many years earlier, he really got engaged in designing the costumes as well as the, the set and the curtain. The set was a series of very sober-looking arches with a kind of arcade space through which the dancers could move. And the drop curtain was a stylized dancer, black against a blue and yellow and white background, that he made with uh, cut paper, uh, using the paper cutout method that he had used initially to design the the big painting, The Dance, for the Barnes Foundation uh, near Philadelphia. And some other paintings in that period, too, such as Still Lifes, I mean, where he had played with cut paper, yeah. 
That's right. In the mid-1930s, he, he started making some still life paintings by cutting out pieces of paper with drawings on them and placing them around a canvas to see what the arrangement would be like. And so he was using something that was uh, an expedient, uh, something that made it easier to compose and recompose because he was so thoroughgoing about changing his composition. You know, from a very early time, he held as a kind of principle that if you changed one part of a composition, you had to change the rest because you had to conceive everything together. And you couldn't make an adjustment and just say, okay, that part's better because, you know, it now had a different relationship with all the rest of the composition. So designing using cut paper is something that evolves in the course of the 1930s as a way of more easily designing um, multiple iterations, multiple compositions uh, for something like the Barnes Foundation dance or the drop curtain for Rouge et Noir. And the costumes are very simplified. The dancers' costumes are in primary colors and black. And these colors have symbolic value in the context of the, of the ballet. But Matisse was very satisfied with the simplicity uh, of the costumes. And I think it was this ballet that really galvanized him to think about using this uh, cut paper method to design for other things. And that, that led uh, in pretty short order to his use of uh, cut paper to design the book Jazz in the mid-1940s. Ah, the 1940s. We arrive at World War II. One of the things I got out of this book was how Matisse engaged with war, patriotism, nationalism, how how so many of these middle chapters in the book particularly might might offer a path to artists working now, engaging with our present. And I think that to a contemporary ear in 2018, the idea that an artist would respond to war with decoration seems seems at least an American artist, seems seems kind of weird. And one of the most interesting aspects of the book for me was how thoroughly suffused it is with how Matisse expressed patriotism in, in the 40s and thereafter, and how his labor and ideas were adopted in various ways by those with nationalistic ends, means, ideas. So before we pivot into the 1940s, how did what you establish as Matisse's patriotism enable and inform his his decorative work of the 40s and 50s. Yeah, just as a moment of background, back at the point of the beginning of the First World War, Matisse tried to enlist. So by 1914, he was uh, 45 years he old. Was, he was born before the Franco-Prussian War, and he tries to enlist in World War I. <laughs> That's correct. And he was disappointed at that. And he did aid in many subtle and behind-the-scenes ways in the war effort, not as a political artist. He, he never made art that, that seems overtly political, but he donated a number of artworks to a fund that would uh, provide relief to the citizens of his home territory, the north of France, because it was occupied by the Germans. And he was proud of his son, uh, Jean, for uh, enlisting. He was fearful, but he was proud of his son. Move forward to the Second World War, and both his wife, with whom he was estranged at the time, but still in close contact, both his wife and his daughter, with whom Matisse was very close, were participants in the resistance and the French resistance against the Nazi occupation. And Marguerite Dutuy, his daughter, was especially active and was captured by the Gestapo and tortured uh, and had a harrowing time before uh, escaping under very in difficult circumstances. And so Matisse was deeply affected 
by both wars because he had children who were directly involved in them. And there's a, there are a certain number of paintings that he made in the, 19, in the late 30s and the early 40s that have a, a blue, white, red color scheme, bleu, blanc, rouge, was the colors of the French flag. And so like Picasso in the First World War, Picasso, for a national in France, made paintings that say things like Vive la France, and he included the French flag in his paintings as a kind of obvious declaration of where his real sentiments lay with France. On a more subtle level, Matisse does the same thing during the Second World War. And so in, in the color schemes of some of his paintings, he does establish a kind of background patriotism. But I think the main thing uh, to emphasize is that for Matisse, a decorative way of thinking about his subject matter in this period was a kind of resistance and maybe even a sublimation of violence at the time. And it's in keeping with his belief that his art ought to provide a respite from the world, whether it's an armchair or a, a violent scene from mythology that is a kind of analog to, but a sublimation of actual violence going on in the world and not so very far from him as well. That decoration became a form of resistance and a way of dealing with the horrors of the world at the time. And there's one painting in particular that he worked on over and over and over again. It's called Nymph in the Forest. And he began it before the First World War, excuse me, before the Second World War in the mid-1930s. But then he continued to work on it during the war in 1942 and 1943, working and working this painting as a kind of therapy. And the painting itself becomes a kind of, and it too has a blue, blue, white, red color scheme as a, as a way of resisting the actual violence going on in the world. So let me, let me stop there and just jump in with, with kind of a, a quick little thing here. So the argument, as I understand it, is Matisse is using decoration, which is a, a French thing going back centuries. I mean, a particular point of pride for the French state, French workshops, French artists, using decoration, using national colors, and using art that features violence, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, all as a way of responding to war with nationalism and patriotism, but in ways less overt and really more timeless than many or most of his peers. Am I getting that about right? I think that's fair, yes. And very interestingly, Matisse had an apologist, the, the French uh, poet and author uh, Louis Aragon, who was a communist in the early 1940s, but a great lover of and supporter of Matisse's work. And Aragon, among others, sort of nominated Matisse as a national figure, as someone who represented the best of France. And Matisse himself, when he had the opportunity to leave France in 1941, uh, he was in uh, the south of France, uh, an American agent who was helping to get French cultural leaders out of France to safety. He offered Matisse passage to the United States, and Matisse had the offer of an appointment uh, as a visiting professor at Mills College in Oakland, California. 
uh, Matisse refused. I mean, he was quite old by then, but also he refused uh, because he, he, he believed that uh, staying in France was a form of resistance. And uh, he said something like, and maybe it's a little egotistical to say this, but he said, well, if all the best of France leaves, then what will become of France? But I think it makes very good sense. It's a point of resistance to the downfall uh, of France. And so staying in France was for him a way of resisting its collapse. So, so all, all of that is to try to provide some context for what what Matisse is doing here. So, I found some of the, I found the chapter title here and, and a couple of the subheadings really pointed and interesting. So, so the, the the primary chapter on this is titled "Violence Real and Decorative." There's a subheading in this chapter called "Decorative Violence," and you mentioned the great nymph in the forest. Could you maybe? talk through a couple of the ways and places, not just in that painting, where we see Matisse engaging violence and decoration and and the idea and emblematic colors and such of the French state. Because I think that's like one of the real strengths of the book. I, th- I, think, that, I think that the connections made here are pretty eye-opening. I don't necessarily have much more to say about uh, Nymph in the Forest, but uh, of, a, of another painting that he made during the war and didn't complete until after the war, a relatively little-known painting called Leda and the Swan. We'll have an image of this on manpodcast.com. I'd never seen this one before, and it pretty much blew my mind. It's a most interesting painting, and its history is, is quite interesting as well. It was commissioned by an Argentinian diplomat, a man named Ancorena who was resident in Paris and lived in a fine house in a great neighborhood. And uh, he was known for collecting artists, so to speak. And he had already had uh, a couple of artists uh, design elements of his house. And he wanted Matisse to make a painting that would decorate a door, actually a set of doors, two shutters and a door, kind of like a a polyptic that opens up to reveal something inside. And Matisse's theme for this painting was Leda and the Swan, a mythological subject of Zeus appearing in the form of a swan to seduce the nymph Leda. So it is a scene of violence. It is a scene of sexual aggression and violence. And as is the case with all mythology, the myth and the story are sublimations of of actual violence. They are ways of putting violent and other themes into into story form. Matisse had a lot of trouble with this subject. He may have been reluctant to let it go. <laughs> he may have found some, maybe a uh, irritating satisfaction, if that doesn't seem contradictory, in working on this painting because he really kept Ancorena, his patient patron, uh, on tenterhooks for a long time. And the subject went through many transformations in the manner of the pink nude from 1935, a lot of them from relatively realistic looking to very abstract forms. And it ultimately took the form of a composition dominated by blue, white, and red, with yellow in there as well to to signify the hair, the golden hair of Lita. And the violence is uh, is uh, lightly indicated, you might say. It's a, it's a kiss, not a rape, or a peck, you might say, from the swan. But this painting, which Matisse worked on throughout the Second World War, uh, seems to be emblematic of his way of using decoration and his uh, activity in making decorative paintings as a response to the violence of the external world. It's, it's, it's little known and little seen. I'm very glad to be able to. It's a, a good quality color uh, digital image uh, in the book. As well as black and white reproductions of the photographs Matisse made chronicling 
the stages you mentioned? Yes, uh, I, I include not not by any means the entire suite of state photographs of photographs made at the end of each day. By by then, when by this time, when he was working on a major painting, this was his routine to uh, make a photograph at the end of each day's work. And thanks to the generosity of the Matisse archives, uh, I was able to to publish uh, a number of these uh, photographs of states leading up to the to the final painting, which shows the evolution of the subject and also shows how how precipitous the final step was, how, how different it was from the evolution. It's as if suddenly Matisse had an image of a solution, and that solution involved a lot of red. <laughs> and so the side panels are red with scratched off elements of, uh, of leaves, and they frame this central action, so to speak, of uh, Lita and the swan swooping down to peck at her. The Oceania designs are a place where a lot of things come together. Patriotism, nationalism, Matisse's lived experience of the Pacific, and new ways of making art and then having the final, I think, edition of 25, if I remember, objects produced. How, how does this project kind of bring together all of those things in 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 two objects made for a semi-mass, you know, a semi-mass upper middle class audience. Yeah, you said it very well. It does bring together a lot of threads and points toward the future in, in important ways. So what Tyler's describing are two large, yeah, more than three and a half meters across by almost two meters high, two compositions in silkscreen on linen which are designed to be hung on a wall as a modern equivalent to tapestry. So they're not tapestries. They're not woven. Uh, they're printed. But they're a kind of light and airy, up-to-date looking equivalent to or substitute for, for tapestries uh, intended for a domestic audience. And in an edition of 30, so he intended these to find an audience in Europe and elsewhere, and his uh, representatives hoped uh, had high hopes for them as well. So... These compositions, which are entirely in white on a beige background, a very unusual color scheme for Matisse, that beige was the color of his wall, a wall in his apartment on which one night he started to he, he cut out little white shapes of birds and pinned them to the wall, more or less as an amusement. Uh, Matisse was a notorious insomniac. And he sometimes woke up in the middle of the night and uh, doodled, in effect, with, with things like drawing, but also cutting out these shapes and putting them uh, on the wall. Now, he had just composed, he had just finished the book Jazz, which he designed using the paper cutout medium. And so he was continuing his efforts in that respect. But he was, he was doing it uh, more or less as a, as a, uh, past, a, time, a way of passing the time filling those uh, midnight hours uh, in his studio. And he didn't have in mind a composition of anything at that time. Well, then along comes a representative of the French national tapestry manufacturer, the Gobelin, inquiring whether Matisse might be persuaded to design some tapestries for the, the French state, in effect, a government commission for tapestries. And if I could just jump in really quickly, this is this is a time when, you know, the war is over. Europe is in not great economic shape. And the French state is both trying to revive a traditional French industry, 
but also revive it because it's a, a, a traditional French declaration of kind of independent nationhood, a continuation of a long French past. Yes, that's absolutely right. And part of the French effort at recovery after the Second World War was a recovery of its cultural superiority, its sense of its cultural superiority. So having the government commission prominent artists to design for their workshops was really equivalent to the Dominican's effort in the sacred art movement to to ask important French artists to design for their new chapels. So both the government and the Catholic Church seeking recovery through art. And, and Matisse being willing to participate and eager to participate. He, he was he was keen to participate. He when the Gobelin people visited, he offered this composition that he had by then elaborated over an entire wall of white pieces of cut out paper against a beige background, which was the color of the wall. And the tapestry people said, well, this is uh, wonderful. I'm paraphrasing here. This is wonderful. But these colors won't do. These colors are too difficult to do in tapestry. Matisse had no idea of that. He was just offering this thing that he'd made as a potential design. So it ended up that uh, Matisse did design tapestries for the French national uh, manufacturer, the Gobelin, but in blue and white. Uh, blue was a much easier dye color. Several colors of blue are used in his tapestries for the for the Gobelin. And the compositions of white uh, pieces of paper on a beige background ended up being these fabric wall because he was Matisse was visited by a London merchant, what's called a fabric converter, um, uh, somebody who adds value to a piece of fabric or to a textile by altering it in some way, by printing, by adding a border, uh, by various other means. And this man named Zika Asher uh, believed that he could make something out of these designs that Matisse had covered his walls with. And so he um, took the pieces back to London and uh, sought to have them made into silk screens. Thus ensued, and we can't go into the, t the detail here, it is enormously complicated that technically it was very difficult to do. They tried several inks and dyes, and they ended up with a kind of oil paint mixture, the help of a chemist in Belfast to Ireland the, that, was, that could be color fast and would adhere well to the linen and would provide the textural contrast that Matisse wanted. So Matisse had these, he was very demanding in his requirements of what the ultimate product would look like. And it was very difficult to satisfy his demands. And this commission nearly broke uh, Zika Asher. The, the panels, as they both called them, didn't sell very well. But at the same time, Matisse designed some headscarves and dress fabric for Asher as well. And those uh, were those sold much better. Asher had a whole line of headscarves uh, designed by artists. But Matisse and Henry Moore were the only artists who designed for a large scale for these modern looking fabric wall hangings. And, and I think they're 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 terribly interesting uh, artworks. They're underappreciated, in my view. We think of Matisse's painting as so often being of static figures, of models posed and holding still. And these designs are all about, especially the sea, movement, indistinct movement, up, down, left, right. It's kind of hard to tell. That's kind of the point. But at the top of the sea, there is a shape kind of emerging out of the border at, at a time when France was trying to get back moving, if you will. Matisse makes work that moves, which he hadn't done. 
It's also worth pointing out that Tahiti uh, is part of French Polynesia, which was a French colony. And so referring to Tahiti is to refer to France's global projection, uh, something that had been compromised by the Second World War. So it was a way of there was there's a nostalgia involved in these artworks. But there's also, I think, a projection of an idea, a larger idea of France. Uh, France is a global presence because Matisse benefited enormously from the colonial aspect of his time in Tahiti. He yes, he enjoyed nature above all. But he was, uh, when he went to Tahiti, he was uh, in his early 60s, and he took advantage of the many comforts that were offered to a French traveler to, to uh, French Polynesia. So I, I think there's um, an element in these and in the tapestries that he made for the Gobelin, which also have these Polynesian motifs of sea and sky. There is a, an idea of projecting French global uh, presence, and that's especially important in the tapestries because one of the main destinations for tapestries made by the Gobelin's firm was embassies, uh, diplomatic offices. And so when, when those would appear in embassies uh, around the world, they were projections of France abroad. And uh, so this idea of using the uh, motifs derived from the colonial experience of Tahiti in projecting French political power abroad, I think that's an underlying uh, element uh, of, of all of these projects. Yeah, I, I should note he may, uh, Matisse ends up making work for both the Gobelin and the Beauvais workshops. The, the, the Polynesia tapestries were, were at the Beauvais and Woman with a Lute from a few years later, 1949, was produced by the Gobelin. So we touched on Vance earlier, so I'm going to mostly, and it's by far the best known of anything we've discussed here, so I'm going to mostly let people read it in the book. But I, I do want to raise something you, you note in the epilogue, and that is that almost all of Matisse's decorative commissions made for specific places or intended to be installed in specific places are no longer in the sites for which they were made, but are now in museums. Even those that are in museums have not been safe from plunder, as we as we mentioned earlier, witnessed the Barnes Foundation's act of self-vandalism in moving its dance mural from the site for which Matisse intended it. What do you think we've lost as these works have moved around? Well, that's a very good question. I, I think one way of approaching it is to think of what we've lost being the inverse of what we've gained. What we've gained in, let's just take the Barnes Foundation as an example. The Barnes Foundation, commissioned, uh, built by the industrialist or uh, patent medicine producer, uh, Alfred C. Barnes, in a suburb of Philadelphia, a very tony, well-to-do suburb of Philadelphia, built in the 1920s. And for that building, Barnes commissioned Matisse to make the enormous 44 feet across painting called the dance. To get to the Barnes Foundation, you had to make a kind of pilgrimage. It frankly wasn't all that difficult. You took a train from Philadelphia out to a town called Marion, and then you could take a taxi or you could walk, pleasant walk through a beautiful leafy suburb to this building where uh, if you'd made a reservation, you could be admitted and see the Barnes collection, which is a stunning, stunning, stunning collection of modern art. But without going at all into the story of its displacement, now it's in Philadelphia. It's at Franklin Circle. It's easy to get to. 
you can go during normal museum hours, whereas in Marion, there were very, very limited hours. So it's by far more accessible. But what's been lost, I think, is the sense of pilgrimage to, to the old Barnes Foundation. And I think that could be generally applied to others of his commissions as well. Now, having said that, it, it is true that artworks he designed for private settings weren't a place that you could reasonably make a pilgrimage to. You couldn't just walk up to the villa of Terriad in southern France and knock on the door and say, could I see the Matisse? You couldn't do that. Or at least you probably couldn't. And so the fact that things that were in private collections are now in public collections, that does increase accessibility. And there's, in a sense, for the people who see them in the new setting, there's no loss in the displacement from one place to another. But in other cases, I think there is uh, a loss uh, in, the in the displacement from one place to another. And when an artwork of this kind enters a museum, it becomes an artwork like other artworks in, in the museum. So when the ceramic tile mural that Matisse did for the Brody family in Los Angeles, when that was bequeathed uh, to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and transported there and installed into a wall, uh, it becomes something just like everything else in the museum. And it loses that uh, specialness of being in its own setting for which it was designed. The pictures in the book, I think, drive that home real strong. Yes. I, I tried to illustrate that fairly thoroughly with uh, with documentary photographs of, of the setting because it was in a it was in a patio, an outdoor living room, a Southern California setting. And others uh, as well have uh, found other homes. But some remain in their original settings, uh, notably those in churches. So the Union Church of Pocanico Hills in uh, southern Westchester County, that contains a stained glass window by Matisse, his final design, his final artwork. Rose, rose window made for the Rockefellers. That's right. Made for the Rockefeller Family Chapel and dedicated to Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, who had been a, one of the founders of the Museum of Modern Art in the, in the 1920s, by her sons, uh, especially Nelson Rockefeller. That's still in place. The Vance Chapel is still in place. And a um, mural that Matisse designed for uh, another sacred art movement project, uh, the church at Assy in eastern France, that's still in place. But it looks like things that are in churches are the only things that resist what, what I think I called the entropic pull of the museum, the, the, the pull of the museum to bring objects into it there finally to rest. And I don't know if, you know, what's eventually going to happen, if will artworks that are now in museums eventually end up in, in uh, that are now in churches eventually end up in museums? I hope not, because I do think there's a, there's a place for resisting convenience and resisting homogenization uh, and keeping something special in the place for which it was designed for as a participant in the purpose for which a place was designed, in the case of these three churches, places of worship and the expression of faith, I think there is a strong place for, a uh, strong argument for keeping those things uh, as they are and preserving the original context. But yeah, the museum is the beneficiary. I say the museum uh, in, a, as, in a general way. Uh, museums in Europe and the United States have benefited from the deprivatization if I can put it that way, of, uh, of a number of Matisse's decorative projects. John Klein, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It was a pleasure. 
Bruce Nauman Disappearing Acts is now on view at both the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan and MoMA PS1 in Queens. Experience Nauman's command of a tremendous range of mediums, from drawing, photography, and sculpture, to performance, neon, film, and large-scale installations in a major retrospective of his 50-year career. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Guggenheim Museum in New York rewrites art history this fall with the first major U.S. exhibition of groundbreaking Swedish artist Hilma Off Klint. Discover this little-known pioneer of abstraction through more than 165 of her bold and radical paintings and works on paper, described by New York Magazine as, quote, some of the most beguilingly uncanny and imaginative works of the last century. Also on view, a new body of paintings created by contemporary artist R.H. Quaitman, inspired by Off Klint. Plan your visit to this exploration of radical abstraction, two artists one century apart, at Guggenheim.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Kimball Art Museum curator and senior deputy director George Shackelford. The Kimball has recently acquired a major Pierre Bernard titled Landscape at Le Canet from 1928. The painting is a four-foot-by-nine-foot Bernardian address of the French decorative tradition we talked about on the first half of the show. It's now on view at the Kimball. George Shackelford, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. In the late 1920s, Bernard starts to paint these large-scale decorations, which isn't to say that he hadn't been interested in decorations before. He starts making decorative panels in oil paint as early as 1890. But your new painting marks the reflowering of, of the thing, what is Bernard re-engaging with and interested in when he's making your big new painting? I think above all, our painting is his first sort of glorious celebration of his new home. He's bought this, well, people call it a villa, but it's a small house, basically, perched on the side of a hill above the little town of Le Canet, which is itself sort of an exurb of Cannes, the seaside resort town, and and Bonar has been visiting in the south of France repeatedly, but this is the first time that he's actually ever owned property there. And he buys this little house, he christens it Le Bosquet, or the sort of the glade, and it becomes then almost his new spiritual home for the rest of his career, essentially. And this painting, The Landscape at Le Canet, is, I think, a reaction to that establishment of a new kind of spiritual place. And so that's that's really the theme of the of the painting is this glorification and celebration of this new homeland uh, for Bonar. You mentioned that he had just bought the house when he makes this painting. So let me fill in some timeline. The painting is from 1928. Bernard had uh, bought the house in February of 27. And there is an, an enormous amount going on in Bernard's personal and professional life at this time. And so I'll bring up a couple of them. But the first one worth mentioning is that Monet, Claude Monet dies in December of 1926. Bernard, like, like Picasso, is not a huge death guy, but he's not quite as phobic of it as Picasso is. Bernard actually attends Monet's funeral, which is something Picasso wouldn't have dreamt of doing. Is there any particular notable engagement with, with Monet here? 
You know, I think that there is, in a sense, an engagement with what Monet has been doing and what Bonar has been seeing Monet do. Although this painting is not nearly as big as the great decorations that Monet is painting in the late teens and uh, and into the 20s, it certainly has the shape, the, the, the measurement of it being basically a kind of a double square is very, very close to the kinds of compositions that Monet was setting up, the formats that he was working with at this time period. And, and so our listeners may be interested to know that Bonar's other residence, his residence in the north of France, was in Normandy in the town of Vernon, which is literally across the river from Monet's home in Giverny. And so the two of them were often crossing the river to actually see each other. And we know that Monet was visiting Bonar as Bonar was visiting Monet. And there is an exchange there that that is not so very easy to pin down, but I think visually the the tonalities of the landscape at Locanet owe a lot to the kinds of color harmonies that Monet was exploring in his big water lily decorations. And like I said, the format is the uh, is roughly the same as the the either the big canvases that Monet was at work on, which measured six and a half feet by sometimes 14 feet wide, or the smaller canvases that were one meter by two meters wide. So about, you know, 40 inches by 80 inches, more or less. And this painting, which is a good bit bigger than that, has that same sense of kind of opalescent color, less about sharp tonal contrasts as it is about very interesting and subtle contrasts of hue. And this too is a is a phenomenon that Monet really explores in in the big decorations that he was at work on just before Bonar paints this painting. The big difference for Monet certainly is that your new landscape engages the pastoral tradition in Arcadia in a way that, uh, in a very specific way, we don't really see Monet doing. I mean, there are goats and a reclining figure and a cow. There is a apparently a woman in the lower middle distance who is walking through the glade of trees you referenced earlier. We'll probably get to more biography in a bit, but is there any particular reason or, yeah, is there any particular reason Bonard is interested in re-engaging Arcadia in the French pastoral tradition, really just anybody's pastoral tradition in, in 1928? I, I think my instinct is that it's fundamentally personally biographical in the sense that he he owns this landscape now it's his and he needs to to depict it in a way that is a bit like Claude Laurent taking possession of the landscape of ancient Rome or the world of ancient Rome or Campania down around Naples uh, that the, the notion that here is a world that now as artist I am in I'm in command of, but in a kind of communing relationship that is about sharing rather than domination. In other words, I I now understand this landscape. It is mine. Uh, I wish to show myself present in it. If I were, if I'm Claude or Poussin, I'm going to put a shepherd in. If I'm Bonar, I'm going to put a man 
who seems to be reclining in a suit, not in terms of not a smock, but in, in beside a, a pair of goats on the side of a hill. So it is a kind of modernized, as you say, a kind of modernized Arcadian vista. As to the moment in time, we are in the 1920s. We still are only a decade out from the end of World War One. There still is very much in French art a desire to reestablish a kind of calm in art and to the, the classic phrase was the return to order after the tumult of the war. And in a way, this painting, I, su- I suppose, participates in that, but in a, in a way that I think is a little bit more personal and poetic and not so much nationalistic and political. I think it can't help but be marked by that sense that, that France needed to be calm again. And that is, that is in effect, of course, what Monet's water lilies are about as well. A kind of, a kind of celebration of peacefulness in the aftermath of something horrendous and indescribable, really. There is a funky horizontal and then quickly vertical tree limb (laughs) at the left far left side of the painting that uh, people can see on manpodcast.com. And it's almost like <laughs> Bonard started down a clode path and realized he needed to get a tree over on one side to make, make the connection plain. <laughs> well, and there's a ve- there's also a very strange tree that looks a bit like a divining rod in the center foreground. Yeah, it uh, does look like a divining rod. And, and also a, uh, a, a whole group of kind of curving horizontal lines that still baffle me. Are they meant to be vines? Are they kind of rough outlines of, you know, perhaps stairs or a kind of rocky step moving down from our foreground into the middle ground? There are angular aspects to this painting that are nice kind of counterpoints to the to the overwhelming sense of roundness and and well a kind of sponginess in the most wonderful sort of way about the way the say the center right part of the composition is painted with these very transparent layers of color uh, blues on top of kind of brownish tones greens kind of mixing in and it has a kind of soft and watery quality in that zone. And then it's as if these spiky plants in the foreground at the lower left, the trees that are kind of angular and not very picturesque, the, the as you say, that sort of almost cartoonish branch of a tree at the upper left-hand corner, these are all kind of interesting counterpoints to that to that sense of luxury and and peacefulness that's in the the middle ground and not to mention the the really luminous 
background of the painting where the terraced hill that's the first thing we see beyond the orange zone that represents the town. The terraced hill is in front of another hill, is in front of another, what you sense is a, a sort of deep space with perhaps a, a rising fog or reflected light that then goes before the last big mountain range. The, that last great range of mountains, the, the sort of blue hillside that we see, which is the distant side of the the Esterel Mountains, which rise to the west of Khan and, and are the sort of majestic terminus of the Alps as they move down towards the sea. The, the landscape bound in by these mountains, but then, you know, opening up from a kind of viewing point of this very yellow foreground, this juxtaposition of warmth in the foreground and coolness in the background is what gives the whole painting, I think, its its really great spacious quality. I mentioned earlier that there was kind of a long list of biographical details that are surely relevant in Bernard's arriving at, at this painting and his late 1920s, early 1930s decorations maybe not specifically relevant in the sense that, you know, you point to anything in the painting and say this, that. But let me let me fill them in and set that up a bit. So in late 1925, so, you know, two and a half or so years before this painting, Bernard finally marries his longtime companion, Marta. And it's kind of an odd wedding situation. They, they, they marry and Bernard invites no one. The same day, as Bernard gets married, he restarts kind of a long dormant but pointedly written correspondence with Matisse. They're both, in some ways, really writing for history as much as to each other, and indeed that correspondence has been published. A few weeks after the wedding, I don't know if it's late 25 or early 26, Bernard's longtime lover, René Monchaty, commits suicide, and then perhaps in response, Bernard pretty much immediately begins his series of paintings of women in a bathtub, and then about a year later, he buys this property. That's all kind of inextricable from each other, so I kind of felt the need to go through all of it. But the point that I really wanted to get to is the Matisse point. John Klein, in his new book, makes the argument that Matisse is engaging in decoration in his early, you know, 19 aughts pastoral paintings, and and that he's well aware of Bernard's 1890s decorative works. I think this painting probably influences and, and, and these late 1920s Bernards probably influence Matisse's turn back to the decorative after leaving it alone in the 1920s. Matisse picks it back up around 30, 31. But this is definitely Bernard engaging with the French decorative tradition, something he knew really well. Why do you think he went back to the French decorative tradition at, at this scale with this kind of tapestry referencing painting at this time? Well, you know, one of the circumstances that we don't quite understand is how this painting came to be. Is it a painting that Bonar made for his own purposes on a quite a large scale? The painting's nine feet wide. Did he paint it because he wanted to make this great statement about his new land, his new his new world and his and to take to, to take a kind of almost a 17th century Dutch worldview attitude towards looking out over a, a magnificently looming landscape. Does he 
make the painting for that purpose or does he make it because he's commissioned to paint a painting that's this big and we know who first owned the painting a man named Henri Capferrer who was a uh, a rich collector who lived in the immediate suburb of Boulogne Billancourt just outside Paris right beside the Bois de Boulogne and we know that it was first installed in his house above a fireplace. What I still don't know is whether the painting was destined for the fireplace or whether the fireplace was created to the painting. And while the nearly 100-year-old Mrs. Daniel Wildenstein, who is the niece of Henri Kapferer, whether she's correct in remembering that he commissioned the painting or whether he simply bought the painting. I think only time and research and the discovery of just the right document will tell us. But we see the painting in Bonar's possession at least a year after it is supposed to have been being made for Caterer. In the portrait that you mentioned to me earlier of Bavouillard, of Bonar standing in his Parisian apartment with a box of paints conspicuously open on the table behind him and staring at this painting, which is hanging on the wall in his home. Now, that painting seems to me to make a kind of personal claim for the picture you know, associating it with Bonar and his own and his own realm of the, this painting from the south of France brought to Paris, installed in his home. Is it being touched up? It's hanging above a, a kind of divan on which Bonar's favorite dachshund is also sitting. So it would be a little bit inconvenient for for touching up, reaching over the, the sofa. But still, Vuillard's portrait is a painting that suggests that there is this very particular relationship of artist and subject between these two things, between Bonar and his and his painting of Le Canet. Did he then decide to sell it to Kapferer? Or was he st simply still thinking about it and perfecting it before delivering it to Kapferer? So the circumstances and the motivations for its creation, I think, are still somewhat fluid and uh, mis not misunderstood, but not completely understood yet. That 1930 Vuillard will have an image on manpodcast.com also includes several familiar Bernard studio objects, such as a, a vase, um, a mirror, and what I think is a myol, a small myol sculpture on a fireplace mantle behind, behind Bernard. There's also a folded up screen over there in, in a corner of the apartment. So lots of references to Bonard the maker, Bonard and decoration. Voyard makes the dachshund hold still, which Bonard never would have done, which is kind of a funny little, <laughs> kind of like a funny little art joke. The one, the, the one last connection I wanted to make or, or to raise and to see if, if you think is there is, you know, this is a a time when Bernard had not been painting a lot of mythological subjects, but at about this time, Matisse is. Matisse, this is exactly when Matisse is uh, painting his abduction of Europa. 
uh, an engagement both with a tradition that Bernard would have recognized and maybe an engagement that Bernard would have recognized because in, in some ways Matisse refers to Bernard's own Rape of Europa from 1919 in, in the painting Matisse makes. Do you think, Bernard, is there anything here that suggests to you that Bernard is specifically engaging with the mythological past? I'm not sure mythological, except that the shepherds of Arcadi were often visited by the gods. I'm not sure that Bonar in his suit lying at the lower right hand corner is really about to receive a visit from, you know, from uh, Diana anytime soon. But I think that I think that for him to do something that is at once contemporary and eternal, if you will, to to look I me mean, to return to a part of France that is storied for its ancient past as well, that the the notion that this part of France is the the old the old link between the Gallic world and the Roman or Mediterranean world, I, I think that those that those associations are inevitable in 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 his paintings of this part of of, of France, and because he, we know that he had, in paintings like the Great Chicago sort of pastoral landscape with the the naked woman in the foreground, because we know that he had very explicitly dealt with themes that were about a kind of pastoral paradise that it's it's not alien to him it, it it is indeed a subject that that he treated before and i think you can also say will continue to treat in one form or another repeatedly throughout his life i mean what are in fact the paintings of this nude woman in her bathtub but a kind of modern Toilet of Venus, you know the the notion of Marthe, who he who is eternally young. Obviously, by the time they marry, she's already a middle aged woman. His lover has committed suicide, and then he turns to paint these bathtubs. I think, for instance, the beautiful one in Toledo, for instance, which has all of the colors that are, that are present in the in the Fort Worth painting. That picture is of a woman who is in middle age and yet is it's as if that once she gets into water she becomes a 20 year old again and i think there's something magical there's something mythic there is there is the you know the sort of sense of a painting that is the equivalent of a love poem and which I think in, in which the, the sort of notion of Venus as the heroine is is not too far fetched. So I, so I think that basically I'm, I'm answering your question by saying that I think that that it's soaked by it without being. Specific. It's, yeah, exactly. it, it, it's, the, it's it's never explicit, but always present. One of those paintings and stories and web of events and references that makes me wish there was a really good thick Bernard biography. Maybe someday. <laughs> Maybe someday. George Shackelford, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to be with you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.